No, I have to eat to eat the last thing. <laughs> no, this you can't start the podcast by eating. I can. I have, I have wonderful Doritos Hopefully. here. Listen. Uh, mm. Well, now we're sponsored by. Yeah, this is not an ad. I swear. And of course, if you like the sounds of people chewing, you can hear more on what's your chew like. You want to have an ASMR podcast? Come on, JM. Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. It is, uh, I'm glad it's Friday. Yeah, I know, once again, you don't never know when we're being recorded, but it's a Friday podcast. I'm glad it's that day. I'm glad that I'm through a weird period of my life and ready to rock coming out the other side. So it's uh it is good. I am good, Roland. How are you today? Well, besides the fact that the the pro tip is not to eat a Dorito just before you want to record, and uh, you might have heard that. Uh, I'm doing fine. <laughs> I'm doing fine. And I'm looking forward to the conversation that we have today because JM, you know, how often you have plans of doing something. And then at some point you just don't do it or you do it halfway or it just doesn't work out. Have you, have you had that experience? Yeah, more than I'd care to admit, but I, I think that it's all about starting before you're really ready to start. I think that a couple of seasons ago, you said that the strategy is the first thing that people are ready to forget. And oh yeah, they are. <laughs> that's the kind of consequences you get at the other side, which is, well, I never really got what I wanted, never really got there. And I feel like there's so many excuses people can put along the way, but there's a point at which you can change your fate very early. And we, we, we saw it in the QA episode with Move Left. We've seen it and talked about it in strategy. We, we talked about it a lot more today um, where you can actually prepare yourselves for success rather than just sort of letting things fall to the wayside. And for that, I am so excited to have my very good friend, Mr. Dan Marquez on the podcast today. Hello, Dan. Hello. <laughs> I, I am excited to be here. Uh, I, I think that that comment about of a strategy is, is fascinating and certainly reinforced by uh, my own experience. You know, I, I'm I'm sure we'll get into it, but I'll I'll just say on that on that topic, I think that is driven by the fact that so many strategies are a not actually strategies, which is something I'll, I'll certainly allude to later, but also that they tend to be very static, right? Like, Oh, I, I came up with a thing four years ago. We have to adhere to it. But no, that, that rarely makes sense. It's like a business plan. You know, once it's on paper, that's the yeah, thing it's on paper. You know, don't do you can't anything change else. paper. Everyone knows that. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm too old for this. I, I remember paper. Wow, wow. Pull, pull on the age card. Yeah, it's fine. I've heard you, of it. You also remember <laughs> Telex. Yeah. Like, I, 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 like, did you did you used to send telegrams across the ocean to all your relatives? I know I, exactly I see, what you're talking about, you know. But anyways, so, hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you for having me. Uh, let's give our listeners maybe a little introduction in who are you and sure. what are you doing here? <laughs> 
Well, what am I doing here is probably something you guys have to answer. But um, <laughs> who am I? I can certainly I can certainly provide some insight on. So uh, my name is Dan Marquez. I am uh, I'm a career uh, consultant, advisor, transformation agent, however you want to frame it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, industrial engineer by education uh, from the University of Toronto. Uh, which is uh, something that I share with uh, Mr. Uh, JMRSE right here. Yeah. Um, I I went into consulting out of school uh, at Deloitte for a few years. I was at Accenture for a long time. I ran uh, Accenture's uh, Digital and Technology Transformation Leadership Practice, which is basically the group that was responsible for helping to shape and architect large, complex uh, digital or technology-powered transformations for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I was at, uh, the Boston consulting group for a year. And then more recently I joined, uh, Google and I work in Google cloud as a, as an account leader for some of our, our largest accounts in Canada. And my role as part of that is, is similar, right? It's about helping to shape, uh, our, our clients transformations and help make them successful in that way. So, so when you, when you take, and, and that's obviously impressive and, and we share one employer, you know, I spent some time at Accenture as well. <laughs> I think a little bit before you to pull out the edge card here, but anyways, um, when, when you take a look back, if you could summarize all of that, uh, illustrious experience that you have into maybe one or two statements, what is the, the key that you've learned which also obviously might set the tone for the rest of the conversation. But what are the what is the key essence that you take away from that time? Well, I'll, I'll answer your question in, in two ways. First one is there's sort of an underlying thesis that I think you can see to my career. And it started even before consulting while I was still in school. I did a couple of summers with a large uh, logistics organization. And some of the work that I did there, I wasn't really doing what was in the job description. I was just mm-hmm. doing work using things like Excel and, and access to like build analytics and automation tools. And that's where I got, I kind of came to the realization like, wow, technology when applied well is kind of like literal business magic, right? And if you're a leader and you have the opportunity to have an actual magic wand at your disposal to help improve your business, who, who turns that down? Right. Um, yeah. And so I thought that that was really powerful. And I, I, I wanted to be someone that was at the, at the center of using technology to drive business improvement. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of been a guiding principle throughout my entire career. Right. In Deloitte, I was in the technology consulting group at Accenture. I was in IT strategy, the tech strategy, the digital strategy and leadership, as I mentioned at BCG, I was in the, the digital strategy practice and now right? I, I work on digital transformation. So you see um, a, a through line, an evolving kind of arc of that through mm-hmm. line, but but it's been a guiding principle. And I, I still believe it to be, you know, m- even more true now than it was when it was in Excel and Microsoft Access, right? Like now you have like amazing AI and all kinds of stuff that really provides, you know, orders of magnitude more power than before. But I think the other thing that I've, I've uh, come away from uh, from my career with is a realization that, you know, transformation is, uh, is difficult and exciting and misunderstood. And in a corresponding way, how to shape a strategy to help you transform and to take the right course of action and then to pivot in the face of new information, all this 
is also is also difficult and also woefully misunderstood. Like I think most people understand what they think a strategy is, and I will I will bet you that the vast majority of people's definition of a strategy is not really what a strategy actually is. Because I, I had a definition of strategy when I started, and it's evolved yeah. probably five times over the course of my career as I better understood what a strategy really means. And we definitely will talk about that. And I also will ask you, remind me that I do that uh, for your definition of transformation, because I've seen different things in reality as well. Sure. Yeah. But before we get to this, um, we obviously want our listeners to uh, learn a little bit more about you as a person. You know, so what are your hobbies, bucket list items, interests outside of developing strategies for transformation? Wait, people have people have interests outside of strategy and transformation. I heard. I heard. <laughs> so weird. Yes. Um, Some no, I, I mean, I'm 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 kind of an always on person, which means that even when I'm not doing this kind of stuff as my day job, okay. I um, all of my hobbies tend to center around like problem solving and puzzles and things like that. So I play a lot of board games, right? Strategy board games. I do a lot of a lot of escape rooms. Uh, I've I've done with you know myself and my you know team that we we tend to 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 team up together. We've done 132 escape rooms with a an, an aggregate success rate of 87.1 percent escape. So. Wow. You know, we and the fact that I track that data also probably tells you something, right? Yeah, but, um, yeah this, this kind of stuff just like it, satisfying my curiosity is basically my is basically my pastime and my day job. It's what I'm just doing all the time, right? It's the same reason why, like, in the middle of a conversation, I will often like pause to go look like Google something because like I want to clarify if that data point is true or I want to know more about something you just mentioned, you know, mm. that's just the kind of person I am. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, and, and it's really exciting. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I know there's a lot of really good, so we're based in Toronto, both Dan and I, I know there's a lot of really good escape rooms around Toronto. Is, is there anywhere else in the world you've been where you found really, really great escape rooms yeah. that you'd like to maybe go back to? Yeah. Um, uh, Vegas. I was in uh, I was in Las Vegas uh, not too long ago for, um, of all things, a like World Magic tournament, Magic the Gathering, a collectible card game that I also oh, yes. play. Yep. One we, more thing of we, like we, we enjoy this together. Yeah, doing doing strategy <laughs> nerd stuff um, <laughs> for uh, for fun. Um, and yeah, I I did um, I did I think I did four escape rooms while I was there. Like I was there for a week. I did four escape rooms. In that time, they were excellent. So yeah, I've done um, I've done them in a, quite a few places. A bunch in Vancouver. I've done a bunch in um, in Montreal, uh, in Ottawa, in San Francisco. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's not 132 in Toronto proper, so you gotta you gotta start to uh, branch out. Well, that's really exciting, and and I, I I'm someday we'll have to do a uh, escape room. Have we done an escape room together? I think I feel like. I don't know. Maybe back in the day, but uh, we have we definitely have to. Let's make it happen, Roland. You got to come up. You got to yeah, come Roland, up for Roland's it. Yeah, Roland's got to come to Toronto. We'll do it together. I will definitely hold you back because I'll just touch things that I, I you know all over the place for no reason. Like there's no value to those. I'm just like, hey, look at these props. I enjoy yeah. the set dressing. As, as I think we all know, JM is an agent of chaos. Yes, um, and I, he I'm, brings I'm that. A... <laughs> to, he brings that to every interaction. Uh, the change that I'm a change agent for 
is from items from on table to on ground. It's more cat than it is a uh, problem solver. But, but the good news is he's also tall. So it's a safe yes. place to hide behind him. You know? ah, yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and also nothing is safe from being put on the floor, even if it's on very high shelves. So I think that's the way it is. Yeah, well, everything you know, on the floor. Let's, let's get to the topic of today because it, besides, besides being fascinating, you know, Dan, you have a lot of, a lot of learning you've done uh, in your career. It, 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 I want to try and pass that on to people. I feel like so so many people are they they always wonder why programs initiatives transformations you know these sorts of things um, are failing and a lot of them do I mean it's a very, I I read uh, stats on on transformation projects there's, there's a huge gap between what's expected and what actually gets you know through what meaning uh, it, you know affects meaningful change that they're able to achieve on, on you know on time and on budget but even to to say like you know there's there's so much pretty clear failure in the industry when it comes to major transformations and culture transformations that come alongside them, technology transformations that enable them. And I think it's, I, I think, you know, we'll talk today more about this, but we talked, we talked in the pre-call about it's a, a profound failure of strategy. Um, and that, that, that it doesn't get you where you need to go because you didn't start in the right place. So l- let's talk about what, what this is because we, we have this, this nebulous concept of strategy. We mm-hmm. want to start talking about defining terms and getting into so, so tell us about strategy. What, what do you see as from an organizational perspective? What is a strategy? What is defining strategy as an exercise? Why do you do it? And how do you do it? Sure. Very, very straightforward question. Uh, I can provide a quick, simple answer. That's not a nebulous thing at all. Um, so I'll, I'll start by saying what strategy isn't, right? I think that a lot of people think about strategy as an, an exercise of planning. That's not what a strategy is, right? Okay. A, a plan follows a strategy. Um, there, you know, you often hear the term strategic planning. You could take the word strategic off, right? They just use the word strategic there to mean really important planning, but that's not like, it's not actually a strategy, right? Yeah. Similarly, um, a lot of people think of a strategy as being an exercise in resource allocation. That's also not true, right? Um, that's just part of the prioritization that comes with the planning, uh, like it, it's certainly a facet you have to account for as you're thinking about strategy, but the simplest way I can frame it is a sh- strategy is an exercise in making well-informed guesses in the face of uncertainty, right? Strategy is fundamentally an exercise in trying to navigate uncertain futures. Planning is different. Planning is knowing what you're trying to accomplish and knowing the situation in which you're operating and then trying to line all the pieces up to achieve what you're trying to accomplish, right? But the strategy has already abstracted away the uncertainty once you get to the planning stage because it's made a bunch of assumptions and now you're planning for how to accomplish that thing. So strategy is saying, in the face of uncertainty, here is what I want to focus on, here is what I want to intentionally exclude so that I can best position myself for the likelihood of success in an uncertain future. And I think that that, a, that element of uncertainty, and B, the fact that it's not about moving pieces around, I think, confuses and surprises a lot of people. Yeah, I, I wonder, this is sort of my immediate thoughts on this one. Um, when you when you define it in that fashion, and you put the word uncertainty in it, you you do release a little bit of responsibility for practicality. Um, because obviously strategies need to be executable. Where do you find the tie between 
what's practical, what's achievable, and what's desirable for an organization? That's a, that's a great question. I think that the, the point of, of a strategy is to maximize your likelihood of success in the face of an uncertain future, right? So not accounting for practicality and achievability of your strategy is decreasing the likelihood of your success in the face of that uncertainty, right? If I say, you know, I think that this is what's likely going to happen in the next 12 months, I think that this is a risk, I think that this is a potential opportunity, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go and do something totally crazy off over here, uh, you know, if you kind of run the math on the, the expected value of that pathway, you got to know that you are taking, you're, you're adding a lot more risk onto the pathway that you're choosing and maybe right. it'll pay off, but maybe it won't. So that's like, that's part of the calculus of choosing that strategy. Yeah. But when I, and, and I'm just thinking out loud here because we're, we're going through a, such a phase in, in the organization that I work in right now, you know, how do we position ourselves? What do we have to do? What impact does it have on our product suite? Blah, blah, blah. Um, how would you approach these things, you know, because at, at one thing, my takeaway, if I understand you correctly, is just, okay, climb on the next hill, have a look out what's there and try to, whatever, plan a path. You know, this is where I want to go. Um, do you have any tips or, or any uh, method how to get to this, how to identify, you know, I, I could pull out my inner MBA and say, oh yeah, you need to do this analysis and that analysis and whatever, right? But it seems that you have way more practical experience uh, to hopefully confirm my suspicion that this is nonsense um, to figure out, okay, how do you determine the what, which is what you describe as strategy? Mm -hmm. So I, I think there are a few lessons learned I've gotten from, from my career. And, and I'll acknowledge, like, I, I don't have an MBA, right? I, I've taken sort of mini MBAs and other mm -hmm. sort of things like that. But all of my perspectives on this topic come from my lived experience doing this kind of work, right? So first off uh, is the general rule that you should focus on pursuing a, what I call a do different strategy versus a do more strategy, right? A lot of organizations, mm -hmm. their answer will be like, they'll just and more stuff on in the face of like, well, if I'm doing everything that I can't miss, right? The problem is that both in terms of like capacity and JM to your point around like likelihood of success, but also in terms of like, of, of making the strategy stick and resonate with the market, with your people, with your customers, right? People don't respond well to an organization that's just that just the do everything company, yeah. right? It's hard yeah. to understand how you engage, how you support it. It's hard to understand why that organization would be a better choice than another if they're not, if they're not focused, right? Um, and then, you know, from like a market and investor perspective, right? It's harder to grasp how this organization is, is prioritizing specific, you know, what I would often get called like big bets, right? Like, here's where I think the real value is. Well, if you think that's where the value is, why are you doing eight other things? focus more on that or focus more on a handful of big pockets of, of opportunity. So that's me. That'd be my first perspective, right? Is do something different, pivot and focus more narrowly than trying to just pile things on. Um, I think I have this term I use called a, a force multiplier, right? I think that 
what, what often gets missed is that great strategies are uh, elegant, right? They seek to find a sweet spot between effort and output where it's not a linear relationship, where there's something that they can do that takes a little bit of effort or you know, a modest amount of effort and investment, but unlocks potentially huge outcomes. So if it doesn't work, they lose small, but if it does work, they win big, yeah. right? Um, I think like a great example of this that I, I, I remember uh, reading from years ago was when, you know, McDonald's made the decision to to branch out into breakfast, right? And a lot of people on their face, they said like, that's not what McDonald's is about. McDonald's mm -hmm. is about burgers and whatever. But, you know, the, the, the thing was they were taking existing assets and they were finding significant upside potential in a relatively light way that, that differentiated them and created an, basically an entirely new market. And that was a huge yeah. force multiplier for them. Right? Yeah, that is definitely that is definitely something that that uh, I'm thinking about and, and my whole company is thinking about. Uh, and, and I agree with you to say you have to do something different. You know, if you play in the space like, like where we play, you know, we could aim to, to do the, the same things that our competition does. Right. But that I think is yeah. futile. Um, there is a nice book that I read. It's called Play Bigger. I don't know if you have heard about that. It basically talks about that you need to change in a way that you define a new category. Because then you can be the, the first in that category. And, and uh, statistics say, and I quote here, that the, the first person who defines the category gets about 80% of all the revenue that is in that category. And all others who try to play catch up divide the the other twenty. Well, with I mean, it. I think that that's that's one angle, right? Like, I I think that that is an example of uncovering a force multiplier, but it's not mm -hmm. the only kind, right? Another option is like if you find a way to significantly reduce the cost in an otherwise like non-differentiated competitive environment, mm -hmm. you suddenly create the ability to differentiate yourself by doing something at a radically lower price, right? Like. Um, and I know that there's a lot that's been said about like Uber, but for example, you know, like Uber managed to offer a radically lower price for a service that was like pretty, pretty much like a fairly staid thing. Now, I think a lot of people have alluded to the fact that this is like driven by, you know, cheap capital and whatever else, but it doesn't change the fact that that's what they were able to offer to the market. And it was enormously relevant. It's not like that was a new thing, but it was a thing done very different. And I think Uber is an interesting case because you also see this force multiplier in them saying, okay, great. We have this base of like people in cars driving around. And then they expanded that to, to food and they expanded all those other things at, at relatively low cost, incremental cost yeah. investment to themselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I just read today that, that Lyft has, even though they're almost back to the number of, of rides that they had uh, pre pandemic, they just lost like 20 or 30% of their valuation, you know, because they were not the number one in that market and they played catch up over all those right. years and, and getting there. The yeah. other thing I see, see sometimes, and this is something that I, I feel like I've, I've seen a lot of financial institutions, like, you know, even le very big legacy banks focus on is that their big value that they're trying to offer now is the customer experience. And we see, I, I mean, in my field of process design and process management, I've seen customer journey, uh, customer mapping, customer you know experience mapping, mm -hmm. uh, be, become such a huge factor in yeah. how companies approach their their execution of strategy. Because one of the pillars that they define is 
that we think we're going to win the market, not by being cheaper, but by being better to work with. Yeah, just by being like less exhausting to interact with, right? Like that's oh yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Well, there's an expression in the in the the voice acting world. I don't know if anyone here, out, out there is a is a voiceover artist, but it's not the best voice to get the gigs. It's people who are the easiest to work with. Those are the sure. ones who get all the all the because there's a billion people who can do friggin' voiceover work. Everyone's got a voice, but you know when you get to the upper echelon of very very good voices. There's way too many. It's the ones you know that you want to work with. Similar with this, with you know these the consumer choices. They they want to work with people or companies that are easy to work with because that's their their first point of contact. You'll pay extra, and I know it's you know it's not a it's not a, a time of plenty right now, but I think there are plenty of people who would pay extra if the experience of interacting with that organization was always positive, was well, especially, always a net positive. You know, and you mentioned the banks, right? Especially in, a, in an environment where it is increasingly difficult for the banks to offer differentiation on the actual core financials, right? Like they can't offer a drastically better uh, rate of return on your on your bank account, right? Or they, they can't offer drastically lower mortgage rates because, you know, it's just not really practical. It, it would put them too far out of step. This is a way for them to differentiate, because if you think about kind of core, you know, I'll get sort of arcane for a sec, but if you think about core kind of value theory, right, it's like, okay, here is like exactly what something is worth in terms of just like the hard ROI, right? And then, you know, however much the someone values that thing above and beyond what it's absolutely valued to the company providing it, that's like, that's the takeaway of the customer that purchases it, right? So if all they offer is like, here's this financial service, you have to jump through a ton of hoops to get access to it. It's very unpleasant. And everyone else is like that. And then you can just kind of add a little bit extra on top of like richness and simplicity and whatever convenience, not to mention that it makes it literally easier to access and use the services, yeah. right? Like that's hugely differentiating. And isn't it so interesting that all this talk about journeys and customer mapping and customer experience design is comparatively new like this has only really been a prevailing way that a lot of companies have thought for what 10 years yeah, 10 yeah. Or 15 years right like Ish. this never really used to be a big topic people would talk about process design they would talk about um you know they would talk about yeah like what is the process by which a customer engages with you but not about like how they felt as they went through the process that was also different way back when you know because there weren't so many means of communication Mm -hmm. Right. You had you had the big factories that produced the widgets, you know, the, the nice TV or the fridge or whatever. Right. And you had three broadcasting channels and, and advertisers just sent out their message, you know, go consume, go consume. And and that has changed 20, 25 years ago. You know, now it's it's all disrupted and, and scattered all over the place. And people have their little subcultures in, in things. And then it's harder for for companies to get that message through. You know, and this, um, it kind of, it brings me to the way that I, I think about strategy, which is a little bit different, right? So I, I worked at Accenture for a long time, as I mentioned, and I was always, I had kind of two different camps that I was exposed to, right? So you had the people that are on the like kind of strategy practice side, you know, similar to the way that people at like BCG, for example, think, mm -hmm. which is very hypothesis oriented, right? It's like, here's the problem. Here is like our body of knowledge about how this problem tends to get solved. Here is a, a, a starting point, 
right out of the gate, right? Like within the first week working with a client, we have a point of view on what the answer is, right? Mm -hmm. We've gathered some information or whatever, but we already have a position and the rest of the body of the work is going to be spent on validating if that approach, if that hypothesis on the strategy is actually appropriate to your circumstances, right? Yeah. Like that, so it, it's, it kind of, it works the opposite way. Most strategy work is structured opposite of the way that most people think about solving a problem, right? Which is very kind of research oriented is how people think about solving a problem. Mm -hmm. It's how most people approach solving problems in their daily life, right? I have a problem. I'll go, I'll Google it. I'll look at a bunch of stuff. I'll see some stuff that maybe kind of makes sense to me and I'll pick from something that I find. Strategy firms say, I have enormous amounts of resources at my disposal from knowledge and expertise, whatever. This is probably the right answer. I'm going to just say, here are the three core assumptions on which this hypothesis rests. I'm going to spend most of my time just validating those hypotheses and doing deep analysis. And that deep analysis, back to our point around uncertainty, is to try to mitigate that uncertainty, right? To unwind as much of that uncertainty yeah. as possible to get as much confidence in the fact that a hypothesis is actually correct um, right. or, or well positioned, at least in the face of whatever uncertainty is left. Well, in most cases, it's it's like CYA, right? You want to keep your job if you are if you are the top poncho or level below, and you do this. Well, guess what? If you fail, you might be out of a job. Well, you know, and and it's funny, and I, we were talking about this before the podcast, right? I'm I am planning on on launching my own podcast in the next couple of months because of this exact topic, right? Like, why is it that so many organizations? don't go for great, they kind of go for yeah. good enough and they go for incremental growth, incremental improvement because they value that steadiness and they value avoiding that risk so much that they're often not really willing to make the big bets and the gambles that have really high upside, but certainly a somewhat higher risk profile. And, you know, I think that that's not necessarily always the right answer, but it's often a safer answer. And I think that, um, You know, I think that's just fascinating to me. So the the podcast is going to try to kind of unwind that and better understand why it happens and maybe how organizations can approach that without necessarily taking on as much risk as they think that they otherwise and, would. And I'm sure even after those 30 minutes that we spoke right now, you have your first two followers even before you started publishing. <laughs> Excellent. I am, I'm glad. Um, but yeah, so so, you know, as I was mentioning, I was surrounded by, you know, on the one side, you have folks from like a strategy mindset, right? That think about hypothesis oriented, right? So technically it's called an inductive approach to problem solving, right? And then the other camp, I had a bunch of folks from, from like design organizations, creative organizations, also inside Accenture that took a much more deductive approach, right? They, they did a lot of like user research and, um, you know, and like sentiment analysis and engaging with audiences and, and just trying to observe the, the state of things and then aggregate up from there to say, like, based on what we've observed, these things are interesting and novel and true, and therefore we should react to them. And then that's how we're going to approach, you know, designing this journey or solving it based on what users mm -hmm. really believe and feel. And that's powerful, too. Right. And I think that the, the thing that I observed is like never the two shall meet was like much more common than you'd think. And so I, <laughs> okay. I started kind of taking an approach. I designed an approach for myself that I thought was kind of a middle ground between the two models for how to approach a strategy. Now, the benefit of a hypothesis based approach is that it's, it's usually right. You're likely to get good results, but not necessarily 
unique or differentiated results, yeah. you're, uh-huh. you're, it's going to be hard to innovate in an approach like that because you're literally trying to tread already tread ground, right? Yeah. And the 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 problem with the deductive approach, with the the kind of grassroots approach, is that it's slow and it's it's you don't have as much confidence that you're going to find an answer that's actually good. Right. Right. Because maybe you just don't come across anything novel talking to people or it's like they just sort of reinforce things you already knew. Um, so the approach that I took, I call it an, an intersectional approach to strategy is saying instead of having a hypothesis around the answer, I'm going to have a hypothesis around the different ways that I need to explore the problem. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to say in order to understand this problem. I, I need to think about it from X number of different lenses, right? So let's say I want to solve this purely from the perspective of maximizing for customer experience. I'm going to solve for it purely from the perspective of trying to reduce the amount of incremental capital I need to spend. I'm going to like all the different ways that I can think about solving the problem, right? And then I'm going to come up with hypotheses that maximize for individual sort of sub objectives or potential objectives of the problem. Mm-hmm. And then the interesting thing that comes out from that is you get a bunch of things that are at the intersection of all of these different ways of trying to solve the problem. And those, those are sort of your commonalities. Those are likely to be universally part of your solution no matter what, right? Hmm. If they keep coming up every way I think about this problem, these definitely need to be part of my answer. But then the other thing is there are interesting outliers that only come up if you think about solving this in from one particular vector, right? If I, if I only think about the best possible customer experience, regardless of cost, I realize that this is a really amazing experience that I could offer. And now I say, wow, well, that's so interesting. That's so exciting. Let's try to find a way to do that a little bit cheaper, but still factor it into the solution, right? Maybe not going for absolute maximum, but going for an 80% version of that that costs only 40% as much. And now I'm starting to find a sweet spot where I'm getting all of the core elements and I'm getting a lot of the value of these outlier aspects without necessarily having to kind of brute force it and get all of these things, right? And it gives me the ability to think about finding a solution that both innovates, but also positions me for kind of maximum likelihood of success. It's just not as fast, right? Because it still requires some of that exploratory work. It does require you to do analysis that is potentially throwaway, right? You're you're exploring a problem from vectors where it's like maybe that doesn't actually matter. But I think it is an intersection that lets you pursue real value while still keeping the door open to innovating. Yeah, it, it sounds like it that both offers the opportunity for satisfiers, like the things that will cover the, the overlap and Venn diagrams and unicorns. Yeah. The things that would yeah. be truly you know, magical, something special that you would never be able to explore in a pure satisfier. That's very cool. I want to talk about that a lot more when we talk about, you know, getting there and what we, what it takes to get there. But I know our audience has been <laughs> wait, waiting for a, a brain break as we, we dig into the strategy to execution um, that, that Dan's brought here. So we have a couple of questions for you to give you a moment to think before we get into the second part of our show mm-hmm. um, on something you're doing right now. So think about you and your organization audience. Uh, how do they approach strategy? How do you approach strategy? Um, how are your approaches to strategy building a path to success? And how much do they hold you back 
the lack of hypotheses or the sort of the pricing into a certain approach or the inability to address these unicorn opportunities. And how are you going to think about this a little bit differently? We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our second section, the how. Welcome back to the second segment of the podcast. And uh, it's a very fascinating conversation with Dan um, about the different facets of a strategy and, and what to look for and, and what a great strategy actually is. Uh, in this segment, Dan, we obviously want to know how to get to the rubber on the road. You know, how do you implement this? How do you execute on your strategy? And I heard you have an idea or two uh, that you would like to share with our listeners. I do. I absolutely do. You know, the thing I think is, is interesting about taking a strategy through to execution is, and this is, I think, the, the insidious thing about, about low-quality strategy work, right? I, I've seen this a thousand times through my career, right? Is mm -hmm. It is easy for strategy to look good in the moment for, for a strategy as pitched or has, as framed to an executive to seem compelling, especially if it's got a lot of flash around it, a lot of theater, you know, there's a lot of buzz and spicy mm -hmm. nonsense, but strategy is by its nature, it's hard to test, right? It is tested by being executed. And so only down the road, only years into executing on a strategy, do you realize whether or not it was actually good or not? especially because as we discussed, right, a strategy is an exercise in navigating uncertainty. So even something that is good may go poorly. Even a good strategy can go poorly. And even a bad strategy can go well, depending on how things play out. Um, so it's, it is often hard to discern a good versus a mediocre strategy in the moment, right? Which is why people pay so much for kind of premier strategy firms to come and do this work. Because it's like, if the only thing I can trust is like that these people have a reputation to maintain, that they have lots of smart folks and they have a lot of access to lots of information, at least that hopefully positions me better. But um, on the topic of you know, execution, I think there are, there are a few things I've observed that tend to be the reasons why strategies do not ultimately translate into success above and beyond like whether or not the strategy itself was good. Mm -hmm. The first one is, is how the execution of a strategy is led, right? I think that the most successful cases of, of executing on a strategy, especially a transformative strategy, right? Something that involves a lot of change involves a duality of leadership. So they, that it's being led by you know, usually two people or someone that is able to embody both, but um, someone that is, an, an evangelist, right? Visionary evangelist type, someone that can really kind of advocate for the strategy that can energize people. People want to be on board with it. They, they see the vision, they get it, they get excited, right? And this is people in the company, but it's also customers and investors and everything. 
and an operator, right? Someone that is really uh-huh. good at thinking through crunchy details, that is really good at kind of pushing and motivating people to like do their best work, uh, that is able to kind of operate at a high level across the big picture, but is also able to dive deep and be credible enough to take on like critical but more granular problems that are going to impact your success. When you have that duality, you know, you, you, you mitigate a lot of the, the most common risks that come up, which is I, on the one side, if you're, if you're lacking that evangelist, that visionary is that you're not, you don't motivate the transformation, right? You don't break through the inertia that comes with trying to drive change and build up momentum and maintain it. I actually wrote a paper with a colleague of mine on this a while ago about how um, transformative momentum is a currency. It is an asset within a company that's underappreciated, undervalued, right? Especially because if you get going with the transformation and you stall, right, the, you lose the momentum, maybe there's a, some fumbles or people don't buy into it or whatever, it right. is very hard to restart that. And it often requires a bunch of new investment just to keep going with the thing you already were planning on doing, right? And that, and that in and of itself, you know, Jam, we were having a joke conversation about if you buy in the break, about if you buy something expensive <laughs> and then it breaks, sometimes you yeah. don't buy the, the thing again, even though you want that thing, just because you already paid for it once and you're like, oh, well, I don't want to pay for it twice. It's like, honestly, organizations do the same thing, right? Their board is like, well, already invested, yeah. you know, a billion dollars. <laughs> well, it seems like there's a lot of organizational drag on well, strategy. Well, yeah, and, and there's, you know, like the the sunk cost fallacy is real and there's a reason yeah. why it is pervasive because it, it affects how people think and it affects how people perceive the change, right? So maybe the, the street won't really let you invest in that again because it already failed once. Um, so that's, that's the one side. You don't have that. It's very hard to motivate the change. Um, and to pivot, right? Like if you don't have someone that kind of stood for what the change was, if you want to change, if you want to evolve that, that transformation, if you want to evolve that strategy and you don't have that person explaining why the strategy is changing, then the people either might think that like the strategy has failed or they might think that like the organization is being inconsistent, right? But if you have that person you believe and they say like, hey, we said we were going to go this way and now we're going to go actually a little bit over this way instead, but here's uh-huh. why. You can like, oh, okay, I get it. I believe that person. Fine. Right. Actually, I have a question about that. In, and this is something that I think is really, I struggle with. I'll be honest. It's I struggle with this a lot, which is either instilling or in some cases restoring confidence in leadership over the course of a transformation. And... I, I think that the you talk about this duality of leadership mentalities, but doesn't really matter if people underneath them don't believe in their capacity to achieve the strategy's goals. Right. How do you create those sort of, I guess, buying signals for an organization to right. buy into the leader as a capable agent? Well, and that's why you need the duality, right? Because the operator side, they're the one that creates the confidence that the execution is possible, right? They're the ones that prove the outcomes by showing results, by, by, by gaining traction, by actually like keeping the wheels turning and actually moving you downstream or, you know, down, downfield, whatever, um, whatever you want to say, right? So 
you need someone to motivate people and to lay, you know, paint a picture and to energize folks. But then you need that operator to actually be the one that knows how to move the organization forward. Yeah. Yeah, but it's also a thing of how you do this. You know, mm -hmm. and I, I know that you, you talk about style versus substance a lot, you know. So so it depends on how you communicate all these things. It's it's good that you have yeah. those people, but how do you convey the message, I think? Yeah, you, you, it's it's funny you mention it, right? Like I, I gave a talk a little while ago and one of the pages that I put up was, unfortunately, my, in my experience, style trumps substance, right? Mm -hmm. And I think most people don't, they think it's, it's the opposite, right? Like I have the good idea and then I'll figure out like, you know, how to communicate it. But the main thing that matters is whether the idea is good or not. That's not true. No, it's just, yeah. it's just not true at all, right? Like you can take a, you can take substance, you can take something that sounds nice and then you can reverse engineer it to actually be a good idea. You can actually build something inside of a, like a pretty shell, <laughs> but a good idea that hides in the darkness forever or that is under communicated, underrepresented dies almost every time. Right. And I, I think that people don't really appreciate how important perception is like people have heard you know perceptions become reality but i don't think it sticks for people how how really really true that that is right like you yeah. need a story you need a storyteller uh, and that narrative will decide how much momentum people are willing to give to a change right and also i think you're most motivated the people or the people who know a lot and who really want to drive change seeing good ideas die is just the, the ultimate killer. Like we had it, man. We had this in our hands. Yeah, why didn't we, we do that? Remember that thing I told you fingers. once? Why didn't we do that thing? Like, well, yeah. because it wasn't communicated effectively. It died and, in the dark. And, and I think people I think people also need to appreciate the the speed at which decisions, choices get made and locked in for folks, right? And then how hard it is to change people's minds after. So starting with something compelling that energizes people and creates a positive perspective from them on what you're trying to do and then filling in the blanks and executing is a lot easier than starting with something that that kind of turns people off and then having to try to pull them back through just sheer force of will and brute force of like well look we did a ton of really great things they may still think that it's not good enough because of their initial perceptions the first time they heard of it right It's, it's, it's an insurmountable problem for a lot of organizations. You have to burn so much uh, like personal political capital to try and bring people back. And you should be using that to help do change, like help, help to encourage positive you know, organizational evolution rather yeah. than trying to use it to drag people along to the thing that happened six months ago, which, um, which talks to the, the challenges you'll face along the way. So talk to me about uh, how you'll be held back And what are some ways you can overcome these roadblocks or as you talked about before, so the organizational drag that slows down or stops positive strategy transformation? Yeah, I mean, I think to answer that, you have to appreciate the fact that the essence of almost every kind of major transformation that an organization tries to accomplish, right, or any strategy they're trying to put into execution, at the end of the day is culture, right? This is something that I, I championed with a previous organization, right? We talked about doing operating model design in a culture first way. 
saying huh. you want to design how your organization is structured first, like design how you want people to behave and then reverse engineer the operating model to reinforce those behaviors. Because what often ends up happening is you, you kind of say what you want your culture to be, but then the operating model that you design undermines the, those cultural norms and behaviors and forces people to either circumvent your own operating model to behave the way that you're telling them you want them to behave, or more, more commonly, it forces them to behave in other ways and then be just chastised by, by you, but, but secretly rewarded oh, by your system, right? Yeah. We, we talk about that as, uh, uh, I, I like to use the word negative influencers, that when you reward negative influencers, you get what you pay for. Yeah, I, I, I talk about this as cognitive dissonance, right? Like you are telling people uh -huh. what you want from them, but then you are, you're actually imposing on them a system that is demanding very different things that are often directly in contradiction to what you told them you want, right? Like, hey guys, I want you to, you know, take chances and make mistakes, but if you screw up, I'll kill you. Like, there's, right? Like, like, I've never which, heard which that. One did you, which you just said that. <laughs> you know that that happens all the time. I yeah. see that. I see it constantly, right? Or it's like, I want to, I want to innovate in the market. I want us to push the boundaries, but we got to bring our costs way down. Like, well, okay, like, so are we investing or, or are we bringing the cost down? Like, you got to tell me which one is true here, right? And I think that's honestly the the difference between great companies that last. And companies that are maybe exciting for a time, but but fizzle or or diminish, is invariably their culture, right? And the psychological safety that you can instill, because your people are the ones that make the execution of your strategy possible. They're the people that take the flag and bring it forward for you, right? That like if your strategy means you need to change some processes, you need to deliver new experiences to customers, you need to build new products. You need to wind down things and explain to the market, explain to customers why those things aren't available anymore. You need to raise your prices, whatever you need to do. Those things are not being done by your CEO. They're being decided by your CEO and then they're being realized by people building new products or talking to customers or explaining things to clients or whatever it is. And if they don't believe it, if they don't understand it, if they don't agree with it, you know, the agreeing with it part is more a matter of like helping people get it right. But if they're not bought in, then they're, they're either going to like half-heartedly do it and it's not going to stick or yeah. they're just going to say like, no pass. We're just not going to do that thing. We're going to keep doing what we want to do. Yeah. Which my, which my hunch is, is like 85, 90, 95% of all organizations because the whole change management aspect is, is completely underserved. You know, not every organization has a Steve Jobs or, or other charismatic yeah. person at the head. Well, and, and I think, you know, in my experience doing transformation work, what often happens with like the change management piece of a transformation program, right? Yeah. Is it's like the last thing to get added on. It feels like it's bolted on on the side. It's the first thing to get cut when, the, when someone wants to make something cheaper. It's like, well, we'll ju just do the stuff. We don't need the change management part. I'm like, no, just do the change management part. Like do less of the stuff do it well and then do another version when it proves itself and it gets everyone excited. And then you unlock all this energy and, and resources and investment, like never cut the part where you tell people why this is awesome ever. 
I wholeheartedly agree, but uh, all the listeners of our show know that I not only say that strategy is the first thing that's forgotten, the second thing that's forgotten or cut is change management. And, and that is horrible. I have this sort of mentality for how you should design a transformation um, that if I call it like an L-shaped transformational approach, right? Mm-hmm. Which is usually there's a lot of stuff you have to change. There's a lot of things that have to change that are very like foundational, right? They cut across. So I'm going to change my, I'm going to put this new technology in place. I'm going to change this operating model. But then you also have kind of narrow um, top to bottom pursuits that are very much like a narrow specific value creating use case that I could put into market. And it requires a small set of discrete op model changes. It requires like one new small piece of technology that requires, you know, and you can kind of isolate that and you can deliver it end to end pretty quickly and put it into market, put it into the hands of customers, really try it out and show that it's real. Yeah. And that's why I think you can't, you can't wait until these are all done before you start doing these kind of like transformative platform level things, right? Like putting in place a, a new piece of technology or whatever. But you also can't only do those and like you're not building up a, a pyramid, right? Like you're not doing like the lowest level foundational thing and then and then and then as you go up and then finally five years in you start delivering value to your customers. Yeah. You have to do it. Yeah, but you also but I like your analogy of the L shape, right? But you also need to have the second vertical spike uh in the queue and the third vertical mm-hmm, spike. Mm-hmm. It's not just one. I agree. It's like it's you have to have a, a backlog of these use cases and you're just knocking them out one by one. So you have a continuous story of success that you can keep sharing that justifies continued investment in those yes. horizontal layers of kind of more fundamental change. Um, that's, I think, a thing that a lot of organizations tend to miss on is they say, well, I can't. I can't put anything into market until I make these fundamental changes to my organization. But those take, what, three to five years, and by yeah. then your strategy isn't even valid anymore. 100% agreed. Is that kind of like the bread and circuses of organizational transformation, um, or at least you know, market, market-driven transformation? <laughs> Do they have to be connected to your strategy? Like, Can you be like, we're going to offer these three cool things along the way, and we transform our company underneath? No, no I, I don't think these, it's like, not about... Of, it's not about Andy. distraction, right? The point is that the, the verticals are proving your strategy in a narrow way, right? They're like oh. a microcosm of your strategy across top to bottom, across the company, right? So it's like, this is an example of the new kind of experiences we want to offer, powered by the new kinds of technology, by the new mm-hmm. way of working that, like, for example, right, you, 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 you take a team, you kind of put them off to the side a little bit, they are going to operate in a different way. You're going to give them investment. You're going to create some like simple technologies that are going to be new and compelling. And they're going to go and they're going to launch it into a narrow target market. And they're going to test out the, the concept in real life. It's going to be an example of what it's going to look like on mass scale across your company in five years. But you get to actually see it in reality in the first six months. Right. right. That is really powerful. Because it proves to people that all this like crunchy stuff at the bottom that you're asking them to change is worthwhile, not in five years, but now. And your inspiring person can take those lessons learned and really socialize that and make people feel like really empowered to make meaningful change because they can show this meaningful change has already happened. It's not like you have to 
and say like, wouldn't it be awesome if this was true across our whole company? And people are like, yeah, it would be cool if that was everywhere. Like, wow, let's do that, right? All, all of a sudden you get that energy. How do you pick where to go? Like what, what are some key indicators that this area is ripe for the microcosm of strategy execution that you need to demonstrate the proof of, uh, of concept? Well, I, I think that you hit on it very early in this discussion, which is practicality, right? Like having your first foray fail is, is like a priming is, is not good, right? Like if the whole point of this is that they build momentum, having one of these like go poorly in a very visible way or, or, or prove that it's actually very hard to accomplish your strategy is, is bad. So practicality is probably the number one thing. Uh, I think visible, not just value, but visible value, right? Like if the thing that you did, great, like really low down the organization, it drove some cost efficiency, people don't get excited by that, right? Saying like, we made it so that a customer, instead of waiting on the phone for 90 minutes, now they can do this thing in eight seconds with two clicks. Like that is an exciting thing to tell people about, right? It's spicy, it's exciting, it's easily kind of sound biteable. Uh, so I think those are probably the two, the two core elements to look for. And I think like whether it can be relatively easily isolated. So uh, minimal cross dependencies, right? Like if that thing requires that you go and implement, you know, SAP, like, oh, we, we need to have a massive new technology before we can do this thing. Well, it's probably not a good example, right? But if it's like we need to build a lightweight digital, um, you know, solution, we need to build an app. Um, that is going to be like loosely dependent on a few pieces of data, but like that's relatively easy to connect to. And, you know, it's within this team that like we can pull across. That's a great, that's a great use case. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. And, and there's also the other aspect when you talk about internally, and that's what I, what I tell my team, you know, um, how do you measure your success? And at the yeah. end of the day, it's not just money, right? The, the, the example that I typically use is, Hey, uh, guys, imagine the, the sport of football. I mean, the real one, right? The, the guys with a round ball. You know, you have a, a limited a limited area of the playing field, you know, 100 by 50 meters. You have 11 players on each side. You have those rectangular things on each end and you have the round thing that has to go into the rectangle, right? And the team that does that more often wins. It's relatively simple, right? It, it's time-based, it's not the, the the winning factors are not how fast you have run or how many miles or kilometers you have run, right? So how much effort you put in. It's not uh, which team has the nicest jerseys, you know, that type of stuff. So I think the exercise is also when you think about internally is to define what's the game that you're playing, right? And then sell that to your investors and, and all that type of mm -hmm. stuff as well. But I think we're getting close to the end of the episode when I look at that little unforgiving clock and we try to stick with, with our uh, good time here. But before we wrap up the show, uh, I also want to give out a little call to action, you know, dear listeners. So what is, when you heard about what we just said, what is your next strategic exercise? Which of the tips that Dan gave us, and I'm pretty sure he has more and he has to come back to share more on this podcast, can help you to make your strategy more robust, actionable, and then prepare you for success. 
So we leave you alone for a couple of seconds and obviously listen to the wonderful music of our friend Jeremy Waltz and we'll come back with segment three in a few. We're back with the last section of the show, our conclusions and goodbyes. Now, you've heard a lot of fantastic things today from our our great guest, Dan, uh, talking about what a strategy is, defining it, about making smart guesses amidst uncertainty, seeking opportunities to shape that elegant strategy by using force multipliers and exploring an intersectional strategy, not just looking for the satisfiers, but also for the unicorns and opportunities to truly differentiate and then moving into actual execution. How do we get there? So building that duality of leadership mentality, the operator, the, and the, the people who are inspiring the storytellers and narrators, um, that, that style, unfortunately Trump's substance, even though both are important, um, understanding challenges you, that, that are come from cultural problems, um, how they, how they might present themselves. Um, and how decision-making is prioritized and ultimately to pursue that L-shaped transformation, show value along the way through something to hang your hat to. Now, Dan, these are fantastic ideas. These are really, really good thoughts, but I'm sure people don't want to just stop at this podcast. They want to get in touch with you. You want to hear more about Mr. Dan Marquez. Please, Dan, tell us all about what you're doing, how people get in touch with you, everything along those lines. Sure. Why, why thank you. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, I am, I have an in stealth mode right now, uh, plans to release a podcast likely within the next couple of months, um, that will be discussing this concept of, you know, why is it that organizations don't go for greatness as often as they, they could or should, what holds them back, um, you know, or, or why do they fail when they attempt it? and trying to, you know, decompose that by engaging with a series of, of guests that are leaders in industry and getting their perspective on, you know, either their attempts or their avoidance of, um, of going for greatness. And, uh, I think that'll be, I think that'll be interesting. Obviously, I think it'll be interesting. Hopefully you do too. Uh, if you want to connect with me directly, the easiest way to do so is through LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, uh, Marquez D on LinkedIn, but I'm pretty easy to find. And uh, I have a series of um, articles that I have I have published in the past on on LinkedIn uh, around a variety of topics like you know why do organizations get disrupted I, I posted a series of articles called the Gospel of Resilience on that topic uh, why uh, you know how how digital transformations work um, how decision making works within organizations a lot of these topics that I've covered in various articles so I encourage you to to go give them a read and, and connect with me. Yeah, and have no worries. We definitely will put all the links and all that stuff into our show notes so that you, dear listeners, don't have to uh, re-listen the last 30 seconds and try to take notes because, as we know, don't take notes while driving your car. Public service (laughs) announcement here on this podcast. But, of course, that leads us to a huge thank you to our audience. Uh, Thank you so much for coming along with us for this little ride. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much to Dan for your fantastic ideas and thought leadership. 
Um, so I think I had a really good time. I, I think you did too, Roland. You, we've been absolutely so much on the break. I mean, normally we we have super short breaks as we sort of get through the sections, but and Roland and I had such a fun time just chatting with you, Dan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. This was fantastic. It was really good to be here with you, my friend. And of course, our audience, as Roland mentioned, whatsyourbaseline.com has lots of great resources for you. And in fact, whatsyourbaseline.com slash episode 40. My goodness, it's up to episode 40. So you can find all the show notes at that at that URL. Um, and of course, until next time, friends, I've been J.M. Erlinson. I'm Dan Marquez. And I'm Roland Volt. And we'll see you in the next one.